particularly the gift of ruling elders to Christ's church. Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 68. Psalm 68. This is the word of God. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yahweh, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You've led captivity captive. You've received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be God, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Amen. And our New Testament text, Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word.
brothers and sisters, recently, as we were in Matthew's Gospel, we heard the wonderful promise of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, where he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Without that promise, without that word of Christ, there would be no church at all. Never would have been, never would be a church without the promise of Christ there and without the almighty power of God in these last days, building his new creation. The church is a supernatural thing. The kingdom of God is a supernatural reality and only supernatural power can build it. Right? We don't have that in ourselves. Don't have wisdom. Don't have strength. Don't have resources. Don't have the know-how. We can't do that. We can't build this church. So what a wonderful promise. Christ says, I will build my church. With with all His glorious, divine power at work to finish this work He's begun. And this is what Ephesians 4 is also about. It's about Christ, the reigning Christ in heaven through His Spirit, building His church, strengthening His church, unifying His church, and bringing His church along into a mature and perfected whole Loved ones, um, we need to take to heart the lesson of Ephesians chapter 4 on this for us here. We can have all kinds of ideas about how how we might see the church flourish and grow, right? Uh, And maybe they're good ideas. Programs, events, outreach, all these things. Oh, let's do this. Let's do this as well, right? Let's build this church. And and those, those aren't necessarily bad. Many of those are probably good. But we need to remember this. Christ has promised to build His church. And He's also told us how he's doing it. We need to use the means that he's promised to bless and go along with the way that he has called us to go. Paul, here, as he writes Ephesians 4 about how Christ is building his church, doesn't mention programs or events or these other things, right? Instead, he focuses on this, that God has given us his spirit and he's filled us with gifts to serve each other And especially, he's given us the wonderful gifts of elders, officers in his church, and that he's using these things to build us up into perfect maturity. I really want to focus in, hone in on on this point this morning. Here's the point. Um, uh, This text teaches us that elders are Christ's gift to his church to build up his church into maturity in Christ. So you go home today. And you're saying, what was the point of the sermon again? Here it is again. Elders are Christ's gifts to his church. To build up his church. And to unified maturity in him. Four things, four ways to unpack this as we walk through the text. Ephesians 4, 7-13. We start with this. Number one, God has given us all grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's basically just verse 7. 
So you can look there with me at verse 7. And the, uh, the, the context we need to keep in mind here as well, Paul is talking about in chapter 4 the unity of the church, uh, the way the church is to function, Christians together, not Christians isolated individuals, but Christians together in this body of believers that Christ is calling us to. He reminds us that, you, that, that we are one in Christ, Um, uh, that we are united in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all in us. So he's calling us to this this unity. And his his concern here, Paul's concern, is that the church be built up in unity. But but how is God accomplishing this this unity? Because unity is not natural to us. Uh, Unity doesn't happen just sort of sporadic, uh, just sort of uh, spontaneously in the church, as, as you well know. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, and they've got Jews, and they've got Gentiles. It's like having Red Sox fans and Yankees fans, right? It's just not going to mix very well, right? It, the, 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 the old, you know, enmity runs deep there. Um, we don't have that same kind of division cutting through us, so obviously as they did. But nonetheless, we have divisions, don't we? We sin against each other. We rub each other the wrong way. We ignore each other when we shouldn't. And we don't ignore each other when maybe we should. Right? So we, 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 we bump, we, rub, we, 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 we hurt each other and sin against each other and put up walls between one another. How is God going to unify and build a church like this. Paul begins to unfold the answer in verse 7. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Interesting, isn't it? He's talking about unity. In verse 7, though, he's talking about diversity. To each one of us, grace was given. A diversity of grace given to the saints, a diversity of gifts given to the people of God, so they can have unity together. He gives many gifts, different gifts, to different people in his church, so that they can build one another up. He gives us these different gifts. Paul talks about this as well. At the end of this section, we didn't read the verse, but in verse 16, he talks about this as well. He also addresses this in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God gives grace to every member, and as he gives that grace, he gives particular gifts that they are to use to serve one another. And that's how the church is is built up in in unity. But notice notice where his emphasis is in verse 7 about about this grace, about about these gifts. Um, He doesn't expand on what these gifts are. Instead, he focuses on the measure of the gift we've been given. He says, we've received this grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's what's Christ's gift? Interesting phrase, isn't it? What's Christ's gift that Paul's talking about here? We've we've received grace according to the measure of this gift. What's the gift? Earlier in Ephesians, I think we get some light shed on this. Paul Paul here is, is uh, talking about Christ's gift, I believe, as, um, as all that we are given in Christ. All, all of it, the, the whole package. Um, earlier in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a stunning statement, isn't it? That God in Christ has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not one little blessing left out. Not one for everything God has to give, He gives in Christ. There's that line we sing in, in one of our hymns, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. God is not like a charitable billionaire who gives a few million to this person or this cause and a few million to this one. He is the billionaire who adopts you and gives you a right and title to everything he has. Everything he has. And what does God have? And it's yours in Christ. In Christ. How do we get it? How, do, how does God give it, right? All that God has to give is in Christ, it's in the person and work of Christ. How, how do we receive that? It's through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says this, In Him, in Christ that is, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the gift is Christ Himself and all that's in Christ. The way it's given, through the gift of the Spirit himself, to the church. This is what I think Paul is talking about here when he says the measure of Christ's gift. Then in verse 7 of chapter 4 here, that, that this gift of Christ is Christ himself given to the church through the Spirit. The Spirit in particular in view. Uh, the, the Spirit is called the gift elsewhere in the New Testament, Acts 2.38, Acts 10.45. Christ ascends to heaven, receives from his Father the, the full gift of the Spirit, then pours out his Spirit on the church to give the church union with him. What, what, where are we going with this? What's, what's the payoff here? The payoff is, is this. The gift of Christ is the Holy Spirit who has come to give us Christ himself. And that's the measure of the gift that we have received, the grace that we have received. So how well equipped are we then to serve one another in the church? How much grace has God supplied every single one of us with to serve each other as he's called us to in his church? He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. God himself dwelling in you. We are well equipped, but we have been given grace according to the measure of that gift. Brothers and sisters, this is such a valuable gift. This is such a useful gift, if we dare speak that way. But we have been equipped with all that we need for life and godliness and serving one another in the church through the Holy Spirit. It's a priceless gift. It's not a gift we could have earned for ourselves. How can, how can, how can we receive this, this gift um, as sinners? How can we receive a gift like this? That question brings us to our second point. 
um, in verses 8 through 10 in the text. Their second point, Christ won this gift for us through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Sorry, I don't have short and snappy titles for the headings this morning, but there it is, our second point. Christ won this gift for us through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Paul, as it were, in verses 8 through 10, turns the gift over and shows you the price tag. Um, He says this, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul is describing the cost of the gift, how we get this gift, who won and purchased this gift for us. He quotes Psalm 68, verse 18, which we read earlier. Um, And in in context, Psalm 68 is describing God as this great warrior who goes out ahead of his people and fights for his people and conquers the enemy and plunders them and takes the spoils of his victory and then comes back as a king up to the temple in Jerusalem and enters in in all pomp and circumstance, receiving worship and praise and tribute from all nations that he has conquered. That's, that's what Psalm 68 is describing. And, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reading Psalm 68, and he says, well, that's about Christ, exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He came down, conquered our enemies, conquered the, the enemies of God, won, won a great victory. What an unexpected surprise. Christ came down to conquer, but he does it. How, how does he do it? riding out on a great war horse, defeating his enemies, crushing them? No, he comes as the suffering servant. He comes to lay his life down. He comes to humble himself. He comes to go all the way to the cross. Verse 9, Paul picks up in this. He's writing about it. Verse 9, he says, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. In other words, Christ goes all the way down into the very grave to a to, to get this gift for his, for, for his people. He gives himself up to death and he's buried. Why, why does Christ have to do this? He, he's, he's taking on God's wrath for our sin. We could never receive the gift of salvation, the gift of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, equipping gifts to serve each other. We could never receive any of those things if Christ did not take on our guilt and our sin and die in our place. But he has. He's done this. And then, and then he rises up from the grave. And, 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 and as, he, as he does this, he wins this great victory over Satan and death. And, 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 he, and he wins for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then Christ ascends up in victory to heaven and he sits down on the throne of heaven itself as the great king reigning over all things. And what does he do? He gives gifts that he is one to his church, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. The point that I'm trying to make, the point that the text is making here, is that this Holy Spirit that Christ has given us is a gift that he could only give us once he became man, 
lived in our place, died in our place, raised up from the dead and ascended into heaven for us. And then he pours out his spirit as the great gift of the end of the ages on his people because he is the great king. That's what this gift we've received costs. It cost Christ these things. It, it, it took this to attain it for us. It's a great reminder of his love for us. And it's a great reminder of just how, how, how precious a gift this is. I have an oil painting, a beautiful oil painting, that my mother-in-law uh, gifted me. And um, it was from a graduation from Westminster. Uh, it's a picture of a sailboat going through the back shore of Castine, sparkling blue water, a uh, perfect summer day there in Castine from the back shore. And it's valuable to me. It's precious to me. I treat it with care and respect and love because I know all that went into it. The years of training it took for her uh, to, to get to a point where she could paint so well. And, and then that, that, that she would then give it to me and my wife as a present, recognizing what we'd done and the love it represents, the, uh, the appreciation it represents. And so knowing all those things, I value it more. Loved ones, do you value the gift of the Holy Spirit that Christ lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven to give you? What more valuable gift could you have? So value that gift. But there's a particular aspect of this gift that I want us to treasure and value this morning. And this is where we go next. In our third point, that Christ's gift of his spirit includes church officers. Christ's gift to his church uh, through, through his spirit includes church officers. Look with me at verse 11, if you have it open. He says this, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Paul talks there about foundational officers in the church of Christ uh, from, that, from that first generation that we read about in Acts. And he also talks about ongoing officers that continue in Christ's church through every generation. Um, uh, Ruling elders aren't mentioned there, but they are mentioned elsewhere in, in many writings in the New Testament. We see them all over. And so the principle here is Christ gives officers to his church. The particular focus of our uh, time this morning is going to be Christ gives ruling elders as well to his church. Loved ones, think about that point very carefully with me. Let, let, it, let it sink in. Christ himself gives ruling elders to his church. Christ, the risen, reigning king, what does he have to give his church? That he won? Yes, his spirit. But in particular, one of the gifts of his spirit, your ruling elders. They are the gift of the ascended Christ to you. When Christ calls a man to be an elder in his church, he's giving you a gift that he earned through his life, death, and resurrection. And he's giving it to you. A heavenly gift. He's not just giving you the, he doesn't just give the church the office of, of elder, which is a good gift, but he actually himself personally calls men to that office. The, the, the particular men in the church that are called to be elders are called to that by Christ himself. This has some practical implications for how we understand the elder's role and, and how we think about elders. I want to look now at, at three of these implications. First of all, it means ruling the elders are not volunteers. 
that they didn't sign up for it, if you will. Right? They should have a desire for it. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So desiring it is good. There should be an inward call in a man. Yes, I think God wants me to do this. I have a desire to do this. But no elder takes the role on himself and makes himself an elder. Christ calls him to it. That means that elders should never ever try to hijack what Christ calls them to do and the office he's given them for their agenda. Right? When you become an elder, you become an elder by the call of Christ, for the sake of Christ, not for yourself. The second thing, the second thing this means is that although a ruling elder is recognized by a church, voted on by a church, approved by a church, um, a ruling elder is not the church's representative. Right? We have, you know, in our civil government, you elect representatives, and they go, and their job is to represent you in, in the government. But, but Christ's church is not structured that same way. Ruling elders are not elected representatives to go and, and look out for your interests. Christ called them. Christ appointed them. And the sum of their duty is what Christ has given them to do. It it includes looking out for the flock, feeding, caring for the flock, loving the flock, shepherding the flock. And the flock needs to be receiving that well, or it's a sign they might not be called. But they are there to do the work of Christ. And, and, And an elder's priorities are not determined by a constituency, but by Christ, the King. Third thing. Because ruling elders are this, because they're called by Christ, filled with his spirit, his representative, under him as under shepherds in his church. It means that their ministry, when it's done in faithfulness to him, to his word, by his spirit, is the ministry of Christ himself. One of the giants of the Reformation, uh, Martin Lutzer, has a book called Concerning the True Care of Souls. He has wonderful words in there. He says this, Christ our Lord alone has and exercises all power and rule in his church. It is he himself who rules his church. He feeds it. He cares for it. He brings to it those wandering sheep which are still astray. And those which are already in his church, he watches over, leads, and provides for so that they may be daily purified more and more from all sins and sadness, that they may be saved and continually led on and encouraged to grow in piety and blessedness. And then he goes on, he says, Our dear Lord Jesus is truly present in his church, ruling it, leading and feeding it himself. But he affects and carries out his rule and feeding of his lambs through his ministers. I've said this before, but Christ is your pastor and your deacon, and your ruling elder. How does he carry that out? How does the great shepherd shepherd his sheep? Through his under-shepherds, whose entire task is to speak his word and shepherd you in his word. So, loved ones, the elders that you have, Christ himself is called to be your elders. And through them, he himself ministers to you. 
So, a word to the elders. Shepherd Christ's flock as an under-shepherd of Christ. Speak his word, not your word. Don't seek his agenda, uh, your agenda. Seek, seek his agenda and his mission and shepherd humbly according to his word. And, and to everyone else, when your elders are shepherding you and speaking Christ's word to you and, and leading you and encouraging you and challenging you, receive it as you would receive the ministry of Christ himself. When they, when they open their Bible and they say, here's what the Bible says, Christ himself is speaking to you. When they call you to come together for a worship service, Christ himself is saying, come and worship together with the church. When they challenge you or, 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 or say you're walking in sin and you need to repent, here, here's why, here's what God's word says. Receive that as the challenge of Christ himself. Hebrews 13.27 makes this same application. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And finally, our last point. The goal of these church officers that Christ has given is the growth of the church into perfect maturity in Christ. The goal of these church officers is the growth of the church into perfect maturity in Christ. Listen to verses 12 through 13. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here, here's the train of thought we've been following. Uh, let, me, let me try to just bring us up to speed where, where we are right now. Christ gives his church officers, pastors and teachers and elders, and they do his work shepherding in the church. They do it, here's what the, the verses 12 and 13 are bringing into view, by, by equipping everyone in the church more and more to use their gifts, God-given gifts, to serve and, and build up the body of Christ until we all come together to maturity perfect in Christ. During my last year at Westminster Seminary, um, they started bulldozing, and they started bringing excavators, and they started cutting down big, beautiful trees. They started tearing up driveways and, and just making a big mess of things. Um, uh, it would be noisy in the class, and it would be muddy and ugly walking to class. Um, and it, it was frustrating. Inside the main classroom building, they had this picture on a foam board of what it was going to look like when it was all done, right? This beautiful computer-generated image of the Westminster of the future, right? You step outside, and it looks nothing like the picture. They've just made a big mess of everything. There's orange fencing around and mud and right, dead trees lying in the ground. Right, what do they do? It's a lot of work. And you never think, looking outside at all that, that that picture inside is ever going to be reality. I haven't been back to check yet. I hope to be. But brothers and sisters, the church often looks like that construction zone. Right? Just a mess everywhere. There's fencing around. There's scaffolding around. There, there, there's machinery around. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look yet like what it one day will be. But, but God has promised he's building his church. 
And, he, and He's equipped us all with the gift of His Spirit. And he's given us elders and He's given us all grace. And the elders are equipping us to serve each other. And He is building His church. Yes, it's a lot of work. And, 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 there's, and there's a lot of construction debris around. But He'll finish it. He'll keep doing it until we've been built into perfect maturity in Christ in the new heavens and new earth. It's hard to see sometimes what exactly God is doing. You can walk down to the foundations, though. Take a look around. There's Adam. There's Eve. God, the very beginning, right? No sooner do they fall into sin, he comes and he speaks a word of gospel to them and gets to work building this people of God. And he keeps building this huge structure across all time and throughout his, his whole creation, right? You see, well, there's that section. There, there's Abraham, the patriarchs, that, that, that great foundation stone he's putting in. And he keeps building it out. And you can look through the course of history and you see God's work going on and on and on. There are the apostles, right? Uh, there, there's the early church. There's Augustine. That's a nice, that's a nice section of the building. Uh, there are the reformers. Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, Luther. Right? That's another wonderful section of the church. There are the Puritans, right? Wow, what good work God is doing there. And then you look, little corner of the building, Limington OPC. He's building his church. You and me, we're, what does First Peter say? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He is building his church, loved ones. This church, all his church, until we have been perfected. And, and, and what's the finished product going to look like? He says in verse 13 this, till we come to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God is going to perfect his church until we are as holy and pure as Christ himself. According to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ, he says, this is inevitable, loved ones. He will finish what he's begun. Um, he has given us his spirit. He doesn't take that back. He's given us his spirit. He's united us to Christ. And Christ's story is now our story. Christ died. We die with him. Christ is raised in glory. We will be raised in glory with him and made perfect with him as his body in heaven. So let us be encouraged. Receive with joy the ministry of your elders here as the very ministry of Christ. And pray for them in their work. And remember, Christ has given you his spirit and equipped you to serve one another as well. Let's pray. Please, O oh gracious God, continue your good work here. Fulfill your promise to us. Build your church for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.